You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jane, and good evening, everyone. It's great to be with you. How about we pray as we get into God's word? Father, we thank you that you are a father who wants to teach us and train us. As we begin Proverbs, we see a situation where a father is teaching his son and And you are teaching us, and so I pray that we will listen and and gain wisdom from you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder if you know what an exabyte is. An exabyte is a unit of digital data, a very big unit of digital data. I'm sure you're familiar with the gigabyte. Uh, It's equivalent to one billion bytes. It's about 200 songs on Spotify or a two-hour movie. Well, an exabyte is the equivalent of one billion gigabytes. That's a lot of movies, and it's a lot of information, and here's what's crazy. Uh, They actually reckon that within a couple of years, humans will be producing 463 billion gigabytes of data every day. So we'll be producing 463 exabytes of data every single day. Now, where does this all come from? Well, a lot of it actually comes from us. Every day, there's around 500 million uh, tweets sent, 350 million photos posted on Facebook, 100 million hours of video content published and over 300 billion emails sent around the world. And that's just digital data. Just think about all the physical data that we might have as well. Uh, in the ancient world, there was a library at a place called Alexandria, uh, which was the most famous and the largest library in the ancient world. And it had 400,000 items, uh, scrolls and so on. Uh, and that was like the biggest thing that you could have in the ancient world. Well, the Library of Congress in the United States nowadays has more than 173 million items. Like it's just an extraordinary and overwhelming amount of stuff that we have. We are drowning in data. Over the course of the last few centuries, uh, human knowledge has expanded beyond imagination and at the touch of a button, we have access to pretty much all of it through the internet. Uh, We have the insights of the philosopher and the, the craft of the designer, the artistry of the poet. It's extraordinary. It is too much to comprehend. Like quite literally, it is too much for us to comprehend. And yet it's still not enough. You see, despite all of this information that we have, our age is an age of confusion and doubt. We have information, but do we have understanding? We have data, but do we have discernment? We have knowledge, but do we have wisdom? 
And that's really why we're doing this series. Today we begin a new series looking at the book of Proverbs, a book that promises wisdom to anyone who will seek it. You see how it's set up in verse 2? This book is written to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. And so over the next couple of months, we're going to study this book and see what God has to say to us and then hopefully be able to apply it in our lives. But as we begin tonight, I want us to think about how do we understand the book of Proverbs itself? And maybe, first of all, we need to consider what a proverb itself is. A proverb is essentially just a short poetic saying that holds, says one writer, a world of meaning. Or as another writer puts it, it's a short sentence founded upon long experience containing a truth. I I like that. That's a short sentence founded upon long experience. We have other names for proverbs, an axiom perhaps, or an aphorism or an epigram. Whatever we call it though, they're all around us. They're all through our culture. They're on the radio, they're in advertising, they're on fortune cookies. Wherever you go, you can find it. They're embedded in the world around us and we use them without even thinking about it perhaps. You know, every cloud has a silver lining. You can't judge a book by its cover. No pain, no gain. All of these little sayings that we have uh, say something to us. They, they hold some meaning for us, some wisdom and insight into life. No pain, no gain. If you, if you want to succeed in something, then you have to work for it. You have to be willing to do that. You, you can't judge a book by its cover. You, you need to get to know someone before you can assess their character. So Proverbs are a big part of our life and they're a big part of the Bible as well. Uh, Jesus spoke in parables but also in Proverbs. So he said, for instance, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now the disciples used Proverbs uh, prophets, uh, Proverbs as well, and the prophets did as well. Uh, but of course, the most famous book of Proverbs is the book of Proverbs that we find in the Old Testament. The book of Proverbs is essentially an anthology of Proverbs. It's a collection brought together from a whole bunch of writers and all of their collected wisdom. The most famous of these writers is Solomon, King Solomon, the son of David and the third king of Israel. And he, as you will probably know, was renowned for his wisdom. 1 Kings 4 says that God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. And people would come from all over the ancient world just to sit at his feet and to learn from him. We're told that he uh, wrote 3,000 Proverbs, and so it's no surprise that he dominates the book of Proverbs. But he's not the only writer. He's not the only contributor. Uh, Chapter 30 introduces us to a guy called uh, Agur. Uh, Chapter 31 has the wisdom of King Lemuel. And then at various other points in the book, there's other sages who contribute their wisdom. So there's all of these writers producing this stuff for us, and there's, there's a lot in it for us. And yet it's quite possible that we haven't spent much time in Proverbs. I mean, if you've got a Bible, you're very familiar with Proverbs. You know, you flip it open, it opens up to Proverbs or Psalms because it's in the middle of the the Bible. And perhaps you kind of grab it a little bit. You kind of grab a little proverb here and there. You think, oh, that's interesting. That's, That's an interesting thought. But you might not do much more with it. You might just sort of think about it for a minute or two, but not really savour it. And perhaps you've struggled to see how it's part of something bigger, how it all fits together. Because uh, Proverbs as a book can feel a bit overwhelming. There's about a thousand Proverbs in it, and they can feel a bit like they're just jumbled together. One moment you're reading about marriage, 
And the next moment you're reading about work and ants and sluggards and things like this, and, and you think, what on earth is this all saying? How does it fit together? They don't seem to be in any kind of order. Uh, well, actually, this is part of the genius of the book. This is a writer called Kathleen Nielsen, and she explains that, that really the way the book is set up, it feels like life itself. You see, we don't sort of wake up and think, okay, I'm now going to uh, just focus on my marriage and then I'm going to think about my work and then I'm going to think about my wealth and so on. No, no, no. Life comes at us from all directions. And so Proverbs is sort of showing us that. It's giving us wisdom for the crazy jumble of our lives as well. But there's also a structure underneath that that I want to pick apart. See, while there's a whole stack of different Proverbs, we can clearly see that there's certain themes that come up again and again, uh, like marriage, like friendship, like relationships, all of these different things. They keep coming up together, and, and we're going to look at them week by week over the next couple of months. But there's also this big theme that I really want to look at tonight, and that is the thing that's at the core of the book, the choice between wisdom and folly. See, the way the book is structured is there's a whole stack of proverbs in the middle part of the book, it feels like they're all over the place. But then there's a big introduction and a big conclusion. The introduction is all about the different qualities of, of wisdom and, and the, the dangers of folly. And then they have all these proverbs. And then the last couple of chapters of the book is an example of two people who chose wisdom. Because that's the big question of this book. Will we choose wisdom or folly? Uh, this book is written as the father, a father, speaking to his son. Chapter 1, verse 8, hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. He had learned from his father. Chapter 4, when I was the son of my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get, a, get insight. And so the, the, the grandfather is speaking to the, the, the father, and then the father is then speaking to the son. It's this kind of generational pattern, passing on wisdom. But from what we can tell, uh, the person speaking is a king, and so he's speaking to a prince, and he's trying to prepare this man to take on leadership. And really what he needs is wisdom. So chapter 8, by me, by wisdom, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, by wisdom, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. So that's the, the setup for the book. This is a father speaking to a son, hoping that he will embrace the call of wisdom in his life. But what exactly is wisdom? We probably have some kind of instinctive definition for it. The Macmillan Dictionary calls it the ability to make good decisions based on knowledge and experience. It's something that most people want. We revere those who are wise. We'd like to be wise ourselves. How we're very eager to listen to gurus or Dr. Phil or, or read books recommended by Oprah Winfrey or something like that or listen to Yoda. Do or do not. There is no try. Like, mind blown, how smart could Yoda be? And there's plenty of people who will offer to us wisdom. They'll present themselves as, as sages, self-help speakers perhaps, who are telling us how to live. But how do we assess all of their claims? How do we know what is wise? What does God have to say about it? Well, we get some insights in today's passage. First of all, in chapter 1, you'll see that there's a bunch of words used 
that kind of help fill out this, uh, this depiction of wisdom. Things like instruction, words of insight, prudence, knowledge, discretion. Each of those words uh, actually gives us more of a, a picture of what wisdom is. So Tim Keller says instruction implies training with strong accountability, even being drilled by some kind of instructor. And it shows that wisdom comes from experience and discipline, perhaps even rebuke, one of the big themes of the book. Insight, he said, is, is, is the ability to notice distinctions and shades of difference where others only see a blur. It's, it's discernment the ability to tell the difference between what is good, what is better, what is best. Prudence and discretion is knowing what to do and when to do it, making the right call at the right time. So to kind of boil it all down, what you could sum up is that wisdom is know-how, knowing how to live. Uh, the word for wisdom can also be attached to other people. So a tradie, for instance, has wisdom with tools. A teacher has wisdom because they know how to teach. In the Bible, wisdom is a bigger uh, concept. Wisdom is knowing how to live. It's to have a kind of life hacks. Or as one writer puts it, to know wisdom is to have the skills needed to make a success of your life. It's the skillful mastery of life itself. And importantly, there's an ethical dimension to this. See, some people have know-how in things that are kind of trivial. You know, perhaps they know how to count cards in a, in, in a game so they can win lots of money at the casino, or, or perhaps they even know how to do bad things. We, we sometimes speak of worldly wisdom, don't we, to describe people who, who know how to pay the least amount of taxes or to rot the system or to grease the wheels of power. The knowledge... And the wisdom of the Bible, though, is a, is a moral wisdom. Verse 3, this book is written for those who want to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. So this is not just skill in living, but in godly living. As David Atkinson puts it, it's moral and religious intelligence. Moral and religious intelligence. And as we read through the first part of the book of Proverbs, the first nine chapters, we see that wisdom has a whole bunch of, of characteristics. So first of all, it's valuable. It's a beautiful thing. It's something elegant and beautiful, like beautiful jewellery. It's verse 9, like a graceful garland for the head or pendants for the neck. In fact, it's even better than jewellery. It's more precious than jewels. Chapter 8, take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. And that's because ultimately wisdom brings life and blessing. It protects someone from danger and disaster. Chapter 2, discretion will watch over you, understanding will guard you delivering you from the way of evil. If you follow this in chapter 3, if you have wisdom and discretion, they will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. It will guide your path. But it doesn't just protect. It actually brings peace and prosperity. So chapter 3, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. And a few verses later, long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honour. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. 
So wisdom is this precious thing that is valuable and wonderful that you want to get and you actually can because it's attainable. See, often in life, the things that are most beautiful and the most precious are unattainable. They're kind of out of reach, reserved for the rich or the fortunate, but not so with wisdom. It can be found, chapter 3, it can be obtained. Wisdom is learnt and anyone can learn it. And that's because ultimately God is the source of all wisdom. Chapter 2, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. And so there's this picture that God wants to give us wisdom. He wants us to know how to live, and all we need to do is to ask for it and to pursue it, because we must pursue it. Call out for insight, chapter 2. Raise your voice for understanding. Wisdom can be found, but you have to look for it. Seek it like silver. Search for it as for hidden treasure. You imagine the picture of someone just scrabbling in the dirt, desperately looking for the treasure. They value this. They want this. And so they're seeking after it. And then if you find it, you must hold on to it. Do not forsake her, chapter 4. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. So even though it's not elusive, it can be lost. We have to protect it. That's because there is something else there that might take it away from us. Wisdom has a rival, folly. If wisdom is knowing how to live well, then folly is the opposite of that. It's making a mess of your life. In the book of Proverbs, we see that in lots of different ways. It could be laziness. It could be a lack of discipline and self-control. It might be saying stupid things or evil things. It's, it's causing trouble. It's rejoicing in division. It's being quick to anger. It, it's being gullible and naive. But the problem is not a, a mental one. It's actually a spiritual one. It's, it's not that people are too dumb to be wise. It's that they resist wisdom. Chapter 1, verse 7, fools despise wisdom and instruction. You know, so they're obstinate. They're stubborn. They're proud, they're cynical, they, they scoff. There's a lot of scoffers in the book of Proverbs. They refuse to listen, they ignore counsel, they would have none of my reproof, wisdom says. In fact, they even hate it. They hate knowledge, chapter 1. They rejoice in doing what is evil. But in so doing, they actually destroy themselves. See, if wisdom brings protection and peace and prosperity, then folly brings calamity and terror, and distress, and anguish. They're the kinds of words that we see through the book of Proverbs for those who are foolish. And ultimately, it brings death itself. And so right through the book, we have this, this setup between wisdom and folly. The one brings life, the other brings death. The one brings blessing and, and a, a, a wisdom, and it shows you how to live, and the other one means that you will make a mess of your life. Chapter 8, for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favour from the Lord, says wisdom, but he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. So this becomes the great setup for the book. What will we choose? Who will we listen to? Wisdom and folly are both calling out to us. In chapter 9, they're, they're both depicted as these women kind of calling out to this young man, 
Who will you come and listen to? So who will we listen to? Wisdom or folly? Who will we choose? So this is the great thing that's brought to us in this book, but how do we choose wisely? How do we choose wisdom? Well, the key to it comes in our reading. Verse 7, it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of knowledge. Or as it's put in chapter 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This is the key. If you want to live well, you need to be wise. You need to know how to live. And if you want to be wise, then you need to fear the Lord. And what is the fear of the Lord? Well, uh, for some of us, that might seem a strange idea even. Like, why do I need to be sort of so intimidated by God? Isn't he supposed to be a loving God? 1 John 4 says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So there is a sense in which a fear of God might be a bad thing because it's just a a, a cowering terror before God, a worry that he's just going to judge us and destroy us. As we'll see later, we don't have to have that fear. But there is a right type of fear which recognises God's greatness. See, in the Bible, you might have heard of people say that we're called to glorify God. When we talk about that, we're actually talking about uh, acknowledging the weight of God. Glory is another another way to describe glory is, is the weight of God. See, God is a weighty God. He's mighty, he's powerful, he's awesome, he's the creator of us and everything around us. He is infinite in all that he is. And so we're supposed to feel that weight. And when we feel, when you see in the Bible, when people encounter God, they feel his weight. So Moses, when he sees God at the, the burning bush, we're told that he, his, he hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. When God appears to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, all the people in the camp trembled as the thunder and the lightning crackles around the mountain. And then even with Jesus, you know, meek and mild, gentle Jesus, everyone, uh, when he shows his power, people fear him. So, for instance, when he's uh, in the boat and the waves are crashing all over the place and he gets up and he calms the storm, we're told that the disciples had great fear because they realised his power. Or when Jesus was transfigured and Peter, James and John are there, we're told that they, they fell on their faces and were terrified. It wasn't that they were terrified that he, could, uh, that he was just going to judge them. It's that they realised they felt his power, his weight. And so the fear of the Lord, there is a right fear of the Lord, which means that we have a kind of reverence of him. We recognise how great he is. And then because of that, we respond with obedience. We understand that he is worth that, that he deserves that. And so in the book of Proverbs, we're told in chapter 8, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. I recognise how great he is, so I'm not going to disobey him. That's what it leads to. But there's also this beautiful sense of trust. Yes, we recognise how big he is, but we also feel close enough so that we can hold his hand. David Atkinson defines the fear of the Lord as reverent obedience. I like that. If you want a simple definition, the fear of the Lord is reverent obedience, a recognition of his greatness and then a humble response 
of trust and obedience. And this reshapes everything. It starts to flow into every part of your life. As David Hubbard puts it, the fear of the Lord includes worship, but it doesn't end there. It radiates out from that to everyday conduct that sees each moment as the Lord's time, each relationship as the Lord's opportunity, each duty as the Lord's command, and each blessing as the Lord's gift. It's a new way of looking at life and seeing what it is meant to be when viewed from God's perspective. It's feeling the weight of God in every aspect of our life and then responding with reverent obedience, trusting him and stepping into that. That is the key to living well and to avoiding folly. You see, the fool doesn't do this. The fool doesn't fear God. In fact, the fool lives as if God is not even there. As one writer says, the fool is essentially an atheist, living as if God does not exist because they don't want God to exist. And really this is at the heart of sin. It was there in the, the first sin and it's been in every sin since. It's fascinating, you know, in the story of Genesis, we see Adam and Eve and they're placed in the garden and there's these two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God says to them very clearly, you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Really what he's saying is you must trust that I know how you should live. And it's so interesting because then the devil comes to Eve and says to her that she should try this tree, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that she can define virtue and right and wrong for herself. And we're told in chapter 3 that she looks at the tree and because she thinks that this fruit could make her wise, she takes it. She is seeking to define wisdom for herself. And Adam and Eve take this because they want to define right and wrong for themselves. They really, they want to know that they know how to live. They want to define all of, all of life for themselves. That was there at the first sin. And it's actually in every sin since. Within us is this heart that desires to define right and wrong for ourselves that says that we are wise outside and without God, that actually we are wiser than God, that we know better how to live than our Creator knows for us. That is at the heart of sin. We have foolish hearts. And so the very first step for us is that we need to humble ourselves before God, to recognise His greatness and to humble ourselves. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This is the key. If you want to be, if you want to live well, then you need to be wise. If you want to be wise, then you need to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord is to humble yourself before him, to recognise his greatness and to trust that he knows the best for your life. One writer says, wisdom comes from above and it begins with us on our knees. So have we gotten on our knees? If you're not a Christian here tonight, this is a great moment for you to do that to humble yourself before the great God who created you, who will judge us, 
but also the one who just wants to give us life. He offers us wisdom. It's attainable. It's there. He will give it to anyone who asks for it. So have you asked for it? Have you trusted him and sat under his greatness? But even if you have done that, even if you do value wisdom and you, you do seek to uh, acknowledge him in all your ways and you trust him, you're not wise in your own eyes, I bet you feel this constant sense within you that you keep going back towards folly, that it's a fight to trust him, that actually in your heart of hearts there might even be a desire to live without God. You pretend, you, you, you imagine, you even wish that there wasn't a God so that you could define life for yourself. That's what we tend to do. We keep going back towards this other thing. We, we keep imagining that we are wiser than God himself. But this always leads to calamity. I reckon the example of Solomon is a fascinating one when you think about his life. See, not long after he came to the throne, God came to Solomon and said to him, ask whatever it is, or ask what I can give to you. You know, like God is, uh, it's almost like Solomon has found a lantern and he's rubbed it up and this genie has come out and said, right, I'll give you whatever you want. It's an amazing opportunity. And I often think, what would I say? What would I ask for if God said the same thing to me? And it's so interesting what Solomon asked for. He says, give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. He asks for wisdom. He knows that he's got this opportunity to lead God's people. He's going to be a king and all that he wants is wisdom. His father had told him to seek it, get wisdom, get insight, and now Solomon asked for it. And because he asked for it, God was glad to give it to him. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. God loves to give wisdom to anyone who seeks it. And then because he was wise, the, the country prospered. This was an incredible moment. God, God blessed him with riches because he asked for wisdom. God gave him more besides that. And then we're told in 1 Kings 4 that Judah and Israel were as many as a sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. This was a time of blessing and joy because wisdom leads to these things. And it's almost a picture of Eden. And they're all enjoying life together, singing Kumbaya and so on. And it's this beautiful moment of God's people living under God's rule. Wisdom is reigning. But just like in Genesis, it all falls apart. You see, even though uh, Solomon valued wisdom, he pursued it and he got it, he also seemed to lose it. See, I reckon... A lot of you, as you begun, as we began this book of Proverbs, and you saw the first words, the Proverbs of Solomon, uh, a little asterisk went off in your mind, a, a little red light. Because actually when you think about it, there is a lot of red lights in this guy Solomon. As we read on and we learn more about his life, we see that he chose a way of folly often. He ends up getting lost in lust and hedonism. 700 wives and 300 concubines who, who turned his heart from God. Uh, he was unwise in the way he led his people. He created, he built this incredible temple for the people, but he actually broke the back of his own people to do it. 
This is contrary to wisdom. It was foolish. Now, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, which was also written by Solomon, it it seems that he turned back to God eventually. But either way, it's a reality check for us. See, even the wisest person in history could still choose a way of folly. And so we are all susceptible to this. We might know what is right, we might fear the Lord, but we can easily lose that fear. We can easily get distracted. We can go and pursue a path of folly. And so if there, what hope is there for us? Well, we have hope only ultimately through Jesus. See, God is calling us to live wisely, to follow his instructions. He knows how we should live. He's created us and he's looking for us to fulfil that. But we fail to do that. The first humans failed to do that, Adam and Eve. We continue to do the same. And so if we're to be accepted by God, we actually need him to make that possible for us. We need someone else to make up for what we have done. And God promises to provide that someone. Isaiah prophesied that God would send a saviour who would truly be wise. Chapter 11, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This Messiah will come who will fear God and who will follow God, will trust God and do the right thing all of the time and rejoice in doing this. That was God's promise. And Jesus fulfills that promise. See, from the very earliest stage, it was clear that Jesus was wise. Luke 2, the child, Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. From these earliest days, people could see it. And when he began to teach, people were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom? Like they're amazed by his teaching. And then he exemplified the life of wisdom in the way he treated other people and his friendships the way he thought about wealth, the way he used his words, all of these different things, he showed a life of wisdom. So he was humble, he was obedient, he was loving, he was wise. Jesus said something even greater than Solomon is here and he's speaking about himself, someone even better than Solomon. He is the truly wise person. But yet again, humanity turned from wisdom. Even though Jesus knew how to live and showed us, showed people how to live, what it looked like to follow God, people rejected him, throwing him out and destroying him, killing him on the cross. And at this moment, like when you look at Jesus on the cross, God looks defeated and idiotic. Now here is this God that we're supposed to fear, this great, immense, infinite God, but he's surely been defeated on the cross. He looks foolish. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that it, this was actually the wisdom of God. You see, Jesus wasn't surprised. He wasn't shocked. He, wasn't, uh, uh, su- he didn't surrender to some greater foe. He chose to die. He was dying so that he could make up for our sin. And then he rose to give us new life, to give us new hearts, that would start to follow him, that would start to become wise, that would follow God from the inside out. That's what God has for us. Paul says 
in, in Colossians 2, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's what God has for us. Wisdom is valuable and beautiful, beautiful, and now it is here in Jesus. It's there for us. It's accessible. Anyone can get it if you will pursue it. And Jesus is offering all of this to us, a life with him, a life following God, a life knowing how to live. And the key is humility. The key is to recognise the greatness of God, to fear him and to respond by faith, to trust that Jesus has done everything that we need and to trust him to give us new life following after him. It's my prayer that that will be our story. Over the coming weeks, during this series, we're going to look at some fascinating stuff. I think it's going to be so helpful and practical. Next week, we're going to think about how we use our words. I've been meditating on this over the last few days and just thinking about how do we use our words in a godly way. The Proverbs have so much to tell us about this. We're going to think about friendship. We're going to think about family and marriage and wealth and all of these different things. We're going to think about some really important topics But before we go into all of that, we need to start with this, the thing that makes sense of everything else, and that is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. To recognise who God is, to recognise, as it says in the Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe, that God is, is like this great lion, this rampaging lion. He's not safe. He's almighty, but he is good. And then because he is good, we can put our hand in his and trust him and follow after him. Will we humble ourselves to do that? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are the God of wisdom, that you created us, you know what is best for us, you know uh, you can show us how to live. We thank you, Jesus, that you did that, that when we watch you and look at you, we see true wisdom beautiful wisdom. And we thank you that in Jesus all the treasures of wisdom are available to us. Lord, give us this key, this this humility, this fear of you that doesn't cower in terror but comes to you in humility, recognising our sin and accepting what Jesus has done for us and then walking in newness of heart. Lord, do that in us, in all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.